I'm going to do my best to stand still for the video people. I know I don't do that very well. Um, so if you see me trying to stay still, it's not nothing wrong with me. It's just I'm trying to do that for the video people because I usually do walk about a mile up here when I speak. Um, but what we're going to talk about this morning, you know Mike started a series for us last week out of Revelation. And we're talking about the first t- uh, three or four chapters in Revelation and what we can learn from it. What I want you to imagine this morning is you're up doing your daily routine. I don't know what you do. Maybe you uh, drink some coffee, eat breakfast. Maybe you watch the news like Amber. I tell her I can't do that. I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. But maybe you do whatever you're doing in your morning routine, and then all of a sudden you get a notification on your phone. You hear that little ding. It's an email. But it's not just any email. It's an email from Jesus talking about the congregation we have here. You know what, there were seven churches that got letters directly from the Savior. That'd be something special, wouldn't it? Hey, if I got a letter directly from the Savior, that's something I might frame. I might print that off, frame it, put it on my wall. Hey, that's something special. And we're going to start with that first church that got the first letter, or the first one mentioned. I don't know where they got them in. But there were seven of them, and we're going to talk about all seven of those. And what I've learned through my travels, what what I did with my dad is, You can go to a lot of different congregations. There's congregations all throughout the world. we got congregations not only throughout this country, in Nigeria, in India, in Ireland. You can go all throughout the world and find congregations. But you know what the problem with congregations are? They're made of imperfect people. Not all of them are bad. Not Not all the congregations are bad. But the good congregations, not everything about them is good either. I think we all fall somewhere in there. And the congregation I'm going to talk about this morning was somewhere in the middle. They weren't all bad, but they weren't all good either. So what can we learn from these congregations to make our congregation the best it can be? Because nobody wants to be going, well, I belong to an okay congregation. We're just okay. Nobody wants to be belong to that kind of congregation. We'll go, yeah, we're a great congregation. We do good things. So hopefully, throughout these studies, you can find where maybe we didn't, maybe, where maybe we can improve on some things. Or maybe, hey, yeah, we're doing that pretty good. But don't, be, don't settle for okay. Don't settle for to be an okay congregation. Well, we're not great and we're not bad. We're just kind of in the middle. I believe there was a congregation that was kind of like that, that we're going to talk about later on. And I'm not going to cover that one, but we don't need to settle for that. The congregation we're going to talk about this morning was in Ephesus. You know, Ephesus was a major town, a major thoroughfare in the time of Jesus and directly thereafter. It was a major port town. Anything that happened in the Mediterranean was likely to come through Ephesus. So there was a church there in Ephesus, too, and Jesus decided he was going to write them a letter. And this is what he, how he started off in Revelations 2 and 1. He said, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write... These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you remember from last week, Mike talked about the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars. I'm not going to get too in detail on that. But what you realize is he walks through these seven lampstands. Jesus knew what was going on in these congregations. He walked through these congregations because the lampstands represented the seven congregations that he was about to talk about. You know, my dad, um, he was an evangelist growing up, and as such, he bought a lot of used cars, and sometimes the cars would break down. And we did a lot of the work on our cars ourselves. You know what we would do? We would do what we call troubleshooting. And you know what the first thing he would do? He'd find the cheapest thing, and if that was, then he'd try to make sure that wasn't the problem. Then he'd go on to the next cheapest thing, and then the next cheapest thing. You know what? You take a car to a mechanic, or you have a problem in your house, you may have to troubleshoot some things. 
Jesus is in the midst of us this morning, and he doesn't have to guess at what our problems are. He knows what our problems are. He doesn't have to guess what our strengths are. He knows what our strengths are. He doesn't have to troubleshoot anything. He knows exactly what we do good and what we don't do so good. So don't for one minute don't think Jesus don't know what kind of congregation we have here in Denton. He knows. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows the things we can improve on. He knows all those things. So he's saying, I walk through the midst of you. So here's, I'm walking in the midst, and this is what I'm seeing here at Ephesus. This is what I am seeing from your congregation. In Revelations 2, verses 2 and 3, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now, that's something pretty good you can say about a congregation. Hey, you've tested the spirits. You've tested people that said they were apostles, and then you found out they weren't, and you didn't listen to them. That's good. That's something good that happened. Jesus goes, I'm commending you for this. That is something that you should be doing. You know, like I said, Ephesus was a major town. You can find the religions of the world in Ephesus, I'm sure, at the time. As a matter of fact, I know you could, because my mom and, her grand, and my grandma, before she died, my grandma really wanted to go visit the Mediterranean. And they were able to do that with my mom and her sisters and her mother. My mom, her sisters, and her mother all took a trip and cruised the Mediterranean. They saw these places in Ephesus where they saw Mars Hill. They saw some of the temples built to false gods in Ephesus. Well, they, they saw the ruins of those temples. But they saw those things. And, that, and Jesus here is saying, you're doing good against standing up against these things. You're doing good about testing people and showing, making them sure they're telling you the truth. In Acts 20 and verses 28 through 30, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Here was a, a warning to the elders. And the elders at Ephesus took this very seriously. They didn't allow anybody to teach false things that were either members of the congregation or from without the congregation. They didn't allow those false teachings to be taught in their congregation. They took that very seriously. And that's something good. That's something that they should be commended for. If we look in Ephesians 4 and 4, from Ephesus. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in the one hope of your calling. They knew that there was only one way to get to heaven. That was through Jesus. And they tested everything through that lens. And if it didn't match up, they didn't teach it, and they didn't believe it. Like I said, Ephesus was a major city that you could find many religions of the world. This right here is the Temple of Diana, the Temple of Armistheus. Anyway, it's the Greek and Roman god of the hunt, goddess of the hunt. It's more commonly known as Diana, but during the Greeks, they had a different name. During the time of the Greeks, they had a different name for it. But it was to the god of the uh, hunt. Goddess of the hunt. My mom saw this, these, these ruins. This was going on at Ephesus. As a matter of fact, we can read in Acts where something very specific happened about this specific temple. If we look in Acts 19, 23 through 29, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way for a certain man named Deatrimus, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with their workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that there are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this 
trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute. But also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So there's a silver that's going, hey, this Paul guy's causing problems for us. Not only is he causing problems for the goddess Diana, whom we all worship and believe, but he's costing us money, too. Because he's saying gods are not, the real God is not made with hands. And people are believing him, and he's drawing them away, and it's costing us money. This is what Ephesus was dealing with on a daily basis. And Jesus said they were passing the test. They were dealing with these false prophets. They were dealing with these false religions and not letting them infiltrate their congregation, which is a good thing because even, there, even after they said all this, what did they do about it? Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Archicus and Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. So they seized these guys, and they were going to take care of this problem. That's what was going on at Ephesus at the time. And they were passing this test. They were passing the test of not allowing these false doctrines to infiltrate their church. Now, if the letter ended there, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Okay, you got, you got commended, you got built up, you were doing the right things. Jesus didn't end his letter here, though. He had something else to say to these, uh, this congregation in Ephesus. In Revelations 2 and 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So you're out there fighting a the good fight against false doctrines, but you've left your first love. How is that even possible? You know, whenever I was thought about that, when I was reading that, I go, how is that even possible? That you're doing all these right things. You're teaching the right doctrines. You're making sure false doctrines haven't been taught. But yet you're left your first love? I believe we can, if we break down a particular verse in Mark, we can find out what it means to leave your first love. Let's look over in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. The writer says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. You know, I picture Ephesus kind of like what we would picture the United States today. There's a lot of things that can take your heart away from, in Ephesus. There's a lot of things you could put your heart into in Ephesus. Everything that came into that part of the world came through Ephesus. You could find almost anything you wanted in Ephesus. And that could be a good thing or a bad thing. The bad thing is all those things can lead your heart away from God. And he doesn't want just part of it. He wants all of it. Let's break this verse down a little bit. The first thing he says is you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart. You know, my daughter loves softball. Uh, many of you may have seen some posts this past week. We've played some softball games. She loves it. She loves softball almost as much as I loved football when I was growing up. If I had a picture of my first love, it would have been football. I mean, I did everything for football. I breathed, ate, slept football. That's what I wanted. It had my heart. You know, my granddad... And my, when my mom and dad were dating, my dad always had a habit, as I told you, of driving junker cars. And what my granddad always used to tell my dad, it's amazing you can get that piece of junk to run to get over here, but you can't get it to run to go home. Well, why did Because he wanted to be over there. He wanted to make sure he was getting over there to see my mom. He didn't really care if he got home, but he wanted to make sure he got there. Does God have our whole heart, or is he just having to... Be satisfied with the leftovers. Well, I'm going to put my heart into this and whatever I have left, then I'll give that to God. But let's look, at, let's look at some of the commands we've been given. In Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust does destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, that's the problem we put our heart in the things of this world. That's our treasure. That's what we want. Do we remember the verse, for man cannot serve two masters? For either he will love the one and despise the other. You can't put all your heart into both things. You know, sometimes we like to say, we can bribe the fence pretty good. I can ride right down that middle line really good. But can we really? No. Because one of them's really going to have your heart when it comes down to it. When it comes down to making a decision, one of them's really going to have your heart. The matter of the question is, which one really has your heart? Because, yeah, as long as you don't have to make a decision against one or the other, you might be able to do a pretty good job of riding down right the middle of the line. But when it comes to making the decision, you're going to make the decision by which one has your heart. So who has your heart this morning? Is it the world or is it God? Well, let's continue in Matthew, verses 10, 37 through 38. Because you can think, well, I can love God more than the world, but let's, let's talk about this then. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You know, it's really easy for us to love God more than the things of this world. Do we love him more than our family? Does God have our heart more than our family? You know, my dad, I remember the study like it was yesterday. He was doing a study with a young couple. I know he may have told the story here. I don't know. But uh, we were doing a study with this young couple, and he was like, God has to have your heart. He read him this verse. And my, and my dad felt really sorry for this guy because that lady was sitting there looking at the baby. And she looked at her husband and goes, I can love God more than him. I go, well, okay. <laughs> but she goes, I don't know if I can love him more than this baby. Does God have your heart more than your family? Because he wants it more than your family. Does that mean you just turn your back on your family? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But when it comes down to it, who really has your heart? Is it God or your family? Is it God or the world? Who has your heart? Because it's going to be one or the other. And when we come down to making decisions, we make decisions by who has our heart. So who has your heart this morning? Looking back at Mark 12 and 30, he says, with all your soul. You know, what do you desire most? We've all seen the movies before. One of my kids' favorite movies is Aladdin. They rub the genie and you get three wishes. What do you desire the most? If you got three wishes today, what would those wishes be? What does your heart desire the most, your soul desire the most? Is it things of God or things of the world? We all have desires, but what does your soul desire the most? Let's look at this. In Psalms 122 and 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Are we glad when we get, like we got to go up, get up this morning and come to church? You know, Brother Eddie talked about how it's been a while, and he was so glad he was able to be here this morning. Are we that kind of happy? Does our soul desire to be here? Are we happy, or is it kind of like, well, I guess i got to get up and go to church this morning? I got to go listen, uh, not necessarily my favorite speaker, but I got to be there. Uh, I wish we could sing those songs better, but I got to be there. Or is it something we're excited about and we look forward to throughout the week? I get to go to church on Sunday. I get to go worship God on Sunday. Is it something when our soul desires are just something, well, we do it, but we really don't like it. You know, my dad had a saying whenever he would tell me something, he goes, I'm not asking you to like it. I'm asking you to do it. Is that how we treat God sometimes? I'm not going to like it, but I'll do it. It's not what I desire, but I will do it. Or is it something our soul sincerely desires to worship God and to congregate with his people? If we continue in Psalms, 
In 60, Psalm 63 and verse 1, it says, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Have you ever been that thirsty where you just were hoping that you could get, make it home to get a drink? You know, I talked about how I played football. Two days in August in Texas are not fun. I'm just going to come out and say it. Maybe you disagree with me, but I'm telling you, we desired the water breaks when it came down to it. We all ran to the water whenever it came down to it. Does my soul desire God the way I wanted that water that day? Because it should. That should be where my desire is, is with God. And you know, that day I wanted that water bad. I'd have paid you 20 bucks for a 20-ounce bottle of water that day, I tell, I'll tell you. There was no price that was going to be too heavy for me to get to that water. Because my, I desired it and I wanted it. Do we have that kind of desire when it comes to God? Or is it, how am I going to get ahead in this world? I, my desire is to get ahead in this world. Or my desire is to have as much fun in this world as I can. You know, you had a choice this morning. You had a choice of whether you were going to be here or not. I hope you desired to be here. I hope it wasn't something that you just felt like, oh, I have to do that. I hope it was a sincere desire because just like in Ephesus, we have options of where we could put the, what our, our soul's desires into. It could be at the lake on a boat. A lot of Sundays for me, it could be sitting in the stands at a cowboy game if I really wanted to, if that's what I desired. There's a lot of things we can do that don't necessarily match up with what God wants us to do in this country, just like in Ephesus. There's a lot of things we can put our soul into and desire, but do we desire God more? Is our desire focused on God more? Now, I'm not saying enjoying some of those things is wrong. I'm not saying it's a sin to go out on a boat on the lake. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that your true desire is your true desire to serve God while you're here. In Psalm 73 and 25, whom I have in heaven but you, there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. Do we feel that way about God, that he's our only desire? We have nobody else in heaven but God. Do we desire him the way the psalmist wrote? Because if not, maybe you've left your first love. If you don't desire God that way, you could be leaving your first love and not even really know it. Because this can happen quick, and you can look back and go, how'd that happen? You ever done that before where you've done something, you go, how did I do that? Why did I do that? Because it becomes a habit. It becomes something that you desire, and before you know it, you're already left the first love. In Mark 12 and 30, again, he says, and with all your mind. What do you think about during the day? Is it how am I going to get ahead at work? Is it how am I going to get my kids to all these practices they got to get to? How am I going to get my kid to this softball hitting lesson? How am I going to get my kid to this track meet? How am I going to get my kid to this band concert? You know, before I had kids, I didn't realize how much of your time they really take up. But that's what a lot of our thinking is, is how are we going to get our kids to all these activities? Do we ever think about God in the, in the day? Is our mind ever focused on God throughout the day? Let's look what the scriptures tell us. In Psalms 10 and 4, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Do we even think about God throughout the day? Or do we go through a whole day, a whole week, a whole month without even thinking about God and what he would have us to do? Because he said the wicked, God is in none of his thoughts. Do we think about God? I mean, 
is a simple question. The answer we may not like to give the answer, honestly, because I know I don't think about God as much as I should. I'll admit that. But it's a very easy question to answer. We may not like the answer we give, but we know what we think about throughout the day. We know whether it's worldly or godly. Let's look in Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Do we meditate on the law of the Lord? Do we meditate on God's word? Or do we meditate on the box score of the game that we just watched? You know, I can give you most of the stats from the early 90s Cowboys. Because I followed it, I memorized it, I know their stats. I know how many times they made the Pro Bowl. I know how many times they led the league in rushing. I know, how many, I know all those things. Why? Because I meditated on it. I studied it. Anytime they had a game, I'd study the stat lines. Why? Because for some reason it was important to me. I don't do that anymore. But for a while there, man, I could tell you the stats of almost any player in the NFL. Because every Sunday after the games were over, I'd go online and look through the stats of the day. That's what I meditated on. Do we meditate like that on God's word? I didn't at that time. I think I'm doing a better job of it now, but I didn't at that time because I meditated on the things of sports. I wanted to know everything I could about the sport. I wanted to know who was leading what. That way, when I went to work, I could talk about it. Because I knew Monday morning we are going to be talking about the games that happened that Sunday. Why wasn't I talking about God's word with them? Why wasn't I meditating on the scripture? That way I could talk to them about God's word on that Monday. Because my mind wasn't there. I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't meditating on the things of God. I was meditating on the things of the world. Has God lost your mind? Is he even a thought process for you anymore? How long has it been since he crossed your mind on an average day? Because he wants all your mind. He just doesn't want part of it. He wants it all. Mark 12 and 30, with all your strength. Strength. That's an interesting concept. We all like to get up here and say, well, nobody's perfect, everybody's sinned, and that's all true. But you have enough strength where you can battle the sin in your life. You can battle the temptation in your life. You don't have to just submit to the sin because I'm human and I'm going to do it anyway. You know what the Bible says on this in John 14 and verse 15? If you love me, keep my commandments. He has commanded us to do certain things. And while it may not be the easy thing to do, it may not be what we want to do, it may be hard for us to do, we have the strength to do it. And just because we're not going to be perfect at it doesn't give us this written excuse that, oh, I don't even have to try anymore. I can't be perfect, so why even try? You know, there was a... A football player back in the uh, early 50s by the name of Otto Graham. And he had went to like six straight NFL championship games. Never won one. And uh, he ended up winning like six or seven. But you know what? People kept telling him, you're never going to win. You're never going to do it. He didn't let it get him down. He eventually won five in a row in the late 50s and early 60s. 
do we get down on ourselves because I'm not going to be perfect at it, so I'm not even going to try? It's never going to happen for me. I'm never going to be perfect, so why even try to follow God's will? He wants your strength. He wants you to show the strength that, yes, I can follow his commandments. Even though I know I'm weak and I'm human, I can still follow his commandments. Does God have your everything is what this comes down to? Or is your everything in something else? Because if your everything's in something else, you have left your first love. Are we that way as a congregation? Do we put everything into God, or is it just something we do on Sundays and then the rest of the time is where our heart's really at in the week, in our soul, in our mind, and our strength? Or does God have it all? Because he wants it all and he demands it all. And if he doesn't have it all, you're in danger of being left from your first love. Now let's see what Jesus says to these people in Ephesus about this. In Revelations 2 and 5, there, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. First thing we got to do is repent. Are you willing to repent? Are you willing to say, yes, I've messed up, and I'm going to do better, and I'm going to put myself on that right track. God's going to get all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are we ready to do that today? Because that's what he wants. He wants it all. He doesn't want part of it. He doesn't want, want what you have left over. You know, we have a dog at the house, and it can't wait till we're done eating because he knows it's getting whatever's left over. God's not like that dog. He doesn't want the leftovers. He wants the first. He wants the best. He wants it all. Are we willing to repent and give that to him? And how do we do that? Do the first works. Remember what you did before, before you left your first love? Go back and do those things. You want to be closer to God? There are things you can do. You want to give God more of your heart, your soul, your spirit, your strength? You want to give God your everything? There's ways to do that. Prayer is a big one. You want to be closer to God? You want to give God more of yourself? Talk to him in prayer. You're not going to have a good relationship with anybody you don't communicate with. Then let him communicate with you. Study his word. Meditate on his word. Say, I'm going to do what he tells me to do. You know what a big one is that we've kind of gotten away from in this country? And I know we're about to have a big lunch, but fasting is a big one. Taking your mind off of the things of this world, taking your mind off the food of this world, taking your mind off what I'm going to eat, and putting it squarely on God. That's a big one. And there are some other things that we can do. I'm not, I don't have time to get into all the ways that these things can help you get back to your first love. But they help. Do those things. Get back to God. Get back to giving God your everything. Maybe we might have some applications this afternoon on some of those things where you can really deep down into where somebody actually gets that. Yeah, I wasn't with my first love. And prayer got me back to it. Or studying his word got me back to God. Or fasting got me back to God. There's all sorts of things you can do to become closer to God. The question is, is that really what you desire? I cannot make you desire to want to be close to God. I cannot make you desire to want to love God with everything you have. I cannot force you to do that. But if you don't, what do he say? Your candlestick will be removed. You will be removed as a congregation of God's people. Now, does that mean that that church wouldn't have ever existed? If, no. But what that means is Jesus wouldn't recognize them. 
they're not in church of Jesus. You know, there are churches all over the world right now that aren't churches of Jesus. You've got churches of Islam, of Hindu, of Buddha. They're not churches of Jesus. But if you want to be a church of Jesus, you get back to your first love of God. You get back to putting God into everything, putting your everything into God. Or else you won't be a church of Jesus. You won't be a church of God's. You'll be a group of people that get together every now and then is what you'll be. Get back to doing the things we did before. Maybe we've gotten away from that. Maybe we have. I don't necessarily see it in this congregation, but maybe personally you think, man, I've gotten away from that. My all's not in this anymore. Well, we need to get it back. Because unless you repent, your left stand will be taken from its place. There's a day of judgment coming. And you want to be a member of Jesus' church on that day. You want to be a member of the church of God on that day. You want Jesus to recognize you as one of his on that day. Because you're going to hear one of two things. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or depart, I never knew you. There is no third option. There is no, okay, well, you did okay. You were an okay congregation, so you just barely passed and made the grade. That ain't going to happen. You're either going to hear, well done, or depart. Which one do you want to hear? And he finishes up with this. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. If you overcome your faults, if you overcome and get back to your first love, your reward will be eating of the tree of life in the paradise of God. That's what we all want. We all want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Nobody wants to hear, depart, I never knew you. So if you have gotten away from your first love today, there's a good thing you still have time as of right now to get back. You have a time as of right now to come back and say, I'm giving God my everything. But I will give you this. Don't wait too long because... What is our life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and then is gone. You don't know what's going to happen to you when you leave. You don't know if you're ever going to have another chance to do it or not. You don't know if you're going to have another chance to give God all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So if you need to do that, won't you do that this morning as we stand and sing?